It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in some smart people who do this stuff for a living. We'll kind of see if we can break it down a little bit. Chris Whalen, founder of Whalen Global Advisors, uh, joins us here. And Hugh Hendry of Eclectica Asset Management. They joined for an extended roundtable on what we might be seeing in these markets. Uh, Hugh, thanks so much for joining us here in our studio here. What do you make of the past few days? The Fed, the ECB, we've got some banks kind of, I don't know if it's crisis or not, that's debatable, but there's a lot going on out there. What do you make of it? I don't think it's debatable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, this is wild coyote, and we we, we went over, <laughs> over um, the clip. But, I mean, seriously, this, this is real, right? Um, the, I think the Fed will stand charged with the greatest Fed folly um, in a very long time. In, in terms of raising rates too fast, or what? In, so, or too late. So it is a fact that they raise rates fast, yeah, in terms of the timeline and the magnitude. And typically, the Fed doesn't do that. And there's a reason for that, because your know, bank is effectively like a hedge fund. Yeah? It, has, um, it, it gets the money from deposits, right? But there's no gate. Yeah? You can take, like with a hedge fund, they insist. I mean, if you're in like one of those big hedge funds, try getting your money out. It takes you two, <laughs> right. like, you know, it takes you two years. With the, with the iPhone, with the banks, so the gate issue, right? But the other issue is that the assets are loans, and it takes kind of like two years to reprice your loan book so that you can raise uh, your CDs without destroying your net interest margin, like without going into losses. So the Fed is cognizant of that, right? And it takes its time. This was, a, this was an impatient Fed, okay? And then what we've discovered... Well, first too patient, right? And then impatient. Well, you, I, I think the world of economics has changed profoundly, but we, we may come back to that. But yeah, and then impatient. Um, but it's the deposit flight revealed. There's always a revelation in markets, and the, the revelation has been the conceit and the arrogance <laughs> of a whole-to-maturity bond portfolio. And that was fine, okay, when rates were stable, but when you aggressively hiked them, and then with this technology jump with the iPhone and with the deposit flight, suddenly you had to mark, because deposits were fleeing, you had to reduce the HTM portfolio. And suddenly you discover that you've wiped out your shareholder funds. I mean, there was a Fed report going back, I think, to the 23rd of March, which revealed, as we know, that uh, total bank assets in the U.S., $23 trillion. What is that? Give, give us a reference. That's one times GDP. Yeah, um, um, 
and you had about 23 billion of shareholder funds, right, in fractional reserves, I mean, we were kind of leveraged ent entities. Um, but the marked market or the unmarked loss was $2.3 trillion. Okay, right. So, so we're talking about, you know, metaphorically, the kind of notion of the dead people walking, the, the banking <laughs> sector. And that's kind of, I'm afraid that's on, on the Federal Reserve. We are staring at a scenario which is very similar to 1930, where we had the widespread failure of the U.S. banking community. Chris Whalen, what do you think about that? I want to bring you in here because you're one of the foremost bank analysts in the country. Um, what do you think about Hugh's point that the Fed really kind of has blood on its hands? Well, I think I, I totally agree with Hugh. And the 1930 metaphor is the correct one because, you know, this isn't the 2008, uh, which was basically just a bit of a tantrum around private mortgages. This is solvency. This is uh, a Fed-induced, uh, you know, panic uh, that looks a lot like the 80s, by the way, with Paul Volcker. The last time we had benchmarks, uh, four or five points above bank deposit rates was back in the 80s. And we destroyed the SNLs, but the SNLs didn't matter. These banks matter. That's the difference. And I think that the Fed is badly mis, uh, you know, they panicked in 2018 with the money market crisis in December. They started dumping reserves into the system the next year, a year before COVID. You can see it on the Bloomberg. Look at the index for Ginny May duration. Wonderful chart you guys have on the terminal. It tells the story. So by the time we get to COVID, the duration on $2.2 trillion in Ginny May securities is one, which is almost impossible. But Chris, I mean, we, we've heard from some analysts that a most or a lot of these, or I would say most of these banks, they have enough capital and Let's assets. talk specifically about PacWest. Well, we PacWest. just had our uh, regional banks analyst in here, um, Herman mm -hmm. Chan. He said they have 188% assets to deposits. I know, but it doesn't matter. These are going concerns. When the stock price gets to 0.3 times buck, that tells you that the bank's going out of business. It's like the politicians, they get voted on every day in the stock market, right? We're voting on PacWest this morning. Hugh, explain to me like I'm five, it. okay? <laughs> if, if, every, if every depositor goes into PacWest and says, I want my money out, they can have it out, as far as I understand but, it right now. No, no, no well, like you're, yeah. you're thinking of this like it's a wonderful life. No, that's not the way financial markets work. They want to know that that bank is a going concern. And when the, the stock price gets this low, the business counterparties back away. And the formula in the Bloomberg, by the way, that generates probability of default is geared off of the equity price. Uh-huh. Okay. What do you think yep. the hedge funds use? That's how it works. So I'm I typing it in right now. Badly. Pack W yeah. equity DRSK. Uh-huh. And me, what is it like 400 basis points? Uh, it, so, it, yeah. <laughs> So my point is, there's a lot of banks behind this one. And, you know, I own Western Alliance. I love that bank. Uh, 0.7 times book, I think they'll be fine. They had already traded off because the mortgage market had come off. That was one of the best performing banks in the country in 2021. So, you know, what's happened is the Fed wants to pretend that they can have a traditional anti-inflation scenario, just raising target rates but they're ignoring the manipulation of the bond market. 
that came with quantitative easing. Let me get Hugh in here because dollars were the securities. Hugh, you made your money and your name by figuring out how this kind of thing is going to play out, right? Um, how does how does this look to you right now? I mean, we've had uh, a few days of this sixty percent you know, 50%, 40% drops in these bank prices. And yet the Fed came out yesterday and said, um, you know, the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient. Yeah, I'm li liar, liar, pants on fire. Um, I so, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm now really representing um, asset capitalism. You know, uh, the eclectic is no more. This is the world of asset capitalism. The, there, there, there are occasional ripples through risk assets, um, when people kind of get excited with this notion that the Treasury might come in and insure all deposits. I want to tell you that we are past the point of relevancy for that procedure. My mm. fear, and I do not say this lightly, I've given it great consideration. Given the peril, present peril, with regard to the magnitude of uh, of losses on security portfolios held within predominantly the regional banks, okay, mm -hmm. you have to cast your mind back to 1934 and the Gold Reserve Act. Back then, as everyone knows, US citizens and their gold was confiscated. I can actually conceive of a federal or a treasury rule coming in and saying, for the next 180 days, you can't pull your money out of the banking sector. That would be terrifying. That would be right. terrifying. But let me tell you, the, the issue, people are, the, the deposit flight today is not people feeding uninsured deposits. It's people saying, I'm getting paid 10 basis points on a CD. I need 500. And what was catastrophic about yesterday was the Fed raised, hit hiked again. It went, hey, why don't we just encourage more deposit flight? They are do-gooders, but they're incompetent and they're not seeing the picture. We are on the verge of a catastrophe which will rival 2008. Uh, they, they keep trying to separate. Um, you know, every Fed speaker we've heard the last couple of weeks says they want to separate monetary policy on the one side with financial stability on the other, and they don't want to mix the oh. two, right? And, uh, and, the, oh. and the Fed funds rate is a monetary policy tool. Chris, what do you think? Because I've asked a lot of people, you know, do... Who do you blame for the collapse of SVB? Who do you blame um, uh, for the collapse of Signature and, and, and now First Republic? Is it possibly you know, the Fed raising rates 500 basis points in a year? And to a man, until today, everyone has said no. <laughs> well, look, these banks did stupid things. I've written about this, Silicon Valley particularly. But the, the key thing is that the Fed is, is in a very pedantic sort of way, and I love what your guest has been saying, by the way, I totally agree. But they want to continue to think they can separate monetary policy from financial policy. When we execute monetary policy in the bond market, for Christ's sake, it, it's not credible for the chairman of the Fed to get up and tell us yesterday that the banking system is fine. When the FDIC has already published numbers that show that it's insolvent, okay? The two agencies need to talk to one another. And I've spoken to governors about this in the past. You know, I worked at the Fed in New York. They don't talk to the bank supervision people. And when they were on the Hill, you saw Vice Chairman Barr. He was asked, did you talk to the bank supervisory staff about your monetary policy, about quantitative easing? And the answer was no. So I, I think we should make economists wear ankle bracelets. I really do. <laughs> These are the most dangerous people in our society right now. Hey, and they are going to crash the system. It is very, very close to 1933. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hugh, we had, 
it seems like a lot of folks are saying, we had J.P. Morgan come in and buy First Republic. But Jamie Dimon, he can't be literally J.P. Morgan and go out and, and support the system. Do you have a solution? Do you feel like our regulators need to do something now? And if so, what would that be? Um, yeah, it's called uh, ZERP. <laughs> it's, it's called, we got to be humble and we got to say, we kind of got this wrong. My, my, my point, hey, listen, you, we've got debt, which is approximately four times the economy, okay? We've got interest rates, which are 5%, okay? If we make the comparison with Jay's idol, Mr. Volcker in the 70s, we had 20% interest rates and we had debt, which was one times GDP. We've gone mm. back to the future. Effectively, we are at the point where the Fed was at 20% interest rates and it was breaking everything in 1982. Okay. Oh, so in, in 1982, we had 20% rates and what was debt to? One GDP? times. So one, one times 20 is 20. Right. And now we're at? Mm. Four times debt and we're five, five and a quarter. Right. So we've actually surpassed, right? Where we're vocal. So Jay, you did it. Okay. Now get your ass and get those rates down to zero or the thing's going to blow but up. But where do you get 400 times GDP? 400% GDP? Where do you? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, we're, we're like 3.67 or something, right? And I'm running up to the neatest decimal right. point. But if you add government debt, household debt, financial debt, industrial debt, you get to... Yeah, just real quickly, guys, come across the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, another red headline, Western Alliance mulls options, including a potential sale. So here we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a Financial no, Times. I, yeah, I'm going to credit the Financial Times. I, I think if we have another major bank failure, uh, Jay Powell's going to have to resign. And this system cannot tolerate that kind of, uh, you know, coming to Jesus, if you will, on the part of an agency like the Fed, because we depend on them to get it right. And so, when they don't get it right, you know, to, to the earlier comment, what should they have done? They should have gotten Fed funds up to three and a half or four and sold assets. That was the astute thing to do, given their past policy moves. But instead, they're pretending it's 20 years ago and they could just raise you know, target right. rates as fast as they want to reclaim their credibility, because that's what's really driving this. I want to panic of Powell. And then you had the fact that they were caught out on inflation and they were so embarrassed as an agency that now they've tried to regain their credibility in what, 18 months. Right. I, I want to reset this just so listeners understand. We're talking to Hugh Henry, who was the founder of Eclectica. Now he's a surfer and a hotelier. Um, <laughs> I, I tweet. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the asset capitalist on Twitter. And Come he's on. a Twitterer. Uh, and, and, then we're, and then we're talking to Chris Whalen. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, for, for me at least, one of the foremost uh, yep. banking analysts in the country. Um, and, and of course, he's also uh, the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. We had yesterday PacWest saying they're going to look at strategic options, including the possibility of a sale. Their shares now are down more than 50 or 50%. Western Alliance now is saying it's mulling options, including a potential yep. sale, and their shares are down uh, about 30% and right trading is halted there for Western Alliance. Yeah. I'm, it, it, I'm, 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 I'm get, get, yes. getting goosebumps to some extent because this is so scary and so dramatic, but I don't know if I'm just not smart enough to push back against these two geniuses <laughs> here. Uh, we have a, a listener writing in and asks, um, of Hugh, do you think any of this is imminent? And then he's got a list of three things. Government intervention, deposit guarantees, or a ban on short selling? 
Oh heavens! Bands on short selling. Let's ban the truth. Let's let's pretend. <laughs> no, I, I mean, let's I think the his Fed. concern is: Are we in a real crisis here that's we about to snowball? Are, this is wild coyote. We've gone over the cliff. The FO. What happened yep. yesterday? The FOMC. It's no longer relevant, right? Policy's too tight. Policy will be collapsed. Like I say, my one fear: If you're talking about government regulation, government intervention, I and I don't say it lightly, but I fear that they may have to get the deposit base of the U.S. Yeah. within the banking sector. I agree. That's and Chris. Do you really question. think that, that that regulators are going to put up gates? I mean, that would cause yes. the biggest bank but, run since the 1930s, but, I imagine. But that's what happens when the central bank injects volatility into this system. That's what they have done. You know, to Hugh's earlier point, right? You can't move interest rates this much when the average coupon in the mortgage space is 3%. Everyone is insolvent. Just do the math, right? But unfortunately, these PhDs at the Fed can't do math. It's astounding So, but I, mean, I guess just my... Again, I'm not, you guys are the experts, but their focus or one of their key focuses is to fight inflation. So you, yeah. the only tool they have or one of the main tools they have is raising interest rates. Do you suggest that they should have stopped at 3% or something like that? Yeah. Or they just go too because fast? I want to, let, let me take that one. Let me take <laughs> one. Because what we are seeing here is we are seeing the crucifixion of the common man on the cross of the vanity of J-Pow. In 2020, oh, J-Pow went it. on U.S prime television daytime television and he said folks we got this we are the we are the federal reserve we're printing money i was like gee they'll send you to prison you're you, you you're not allowed you have no federal sanction to print money what are you doing but again the the, the feds is in the business of camouflage to see it. it's in the business of aura we are all powerful and so it made that comment and then you get this profound supply shock which was covid right and mm -hmm. prices yep. get elevated and people go hey jay, jay you're printing money and now prices are like running double digit and jay went into meltdown in terms of the institution and the rapidity of the rate hikes was to protect and safeguard and pull back that comment that they had printed money inflation so i believe is transitory and now with bad deflationary money running through the banking sector I would anticipate that we're going to see prices. Hey, this is 90 days. CPI is going to be running at 3.5%. By the end of the year, I think we're going to be close to zero again. We're going to be below the Fed's target. Chris, this is terrifying. Well, what do yeah. you think? <laughs> well, no, but to his point, if you're a banker right now and you're trying to survive, what have you done? You told your loan officers to step back and turn it down. So you know this economy is going to slow down because the supply of credit from the banking system, from the bond market is going to be greatly reduced because everybody who's got this problem we've been talking about with interest rates has got to raise cash. Everything is for sale. So Jay Powell has basically put the whole banking industry, and I mean big and small banks, don't think the big guys are immune here. They're all for sale now. They're all in liquidation mode. And I think the Fed is going to come out of this greatly weakened. I think you're going to see Powell forced to resign. And then I think Yellen will be following him out the door. Because, you know, but Chris, do you believe that be regulators could debt ceiling this week, right? Yeah. Do you, do, be, well, now we have a tsunami before the tsunami. Do you believe that um, the that regulators could put up gates to deposits? Yes, it's inevitable. It's very third world. But here we are. You know, we've got to start practic uh, practicing our Portuguese. 
Um, I, I really think, you know, I worked in the emerging markets years ago, and it is scary to me watching this because it's like deja vu. And it's not just Wiley e. Coyote. I think that's very clear, but it is the hubris and the personal convenience of Jay Powell and the other members of the Fed board that we're seeing. They're not you know, acting in the public interest right now. They're covering their ass because they don't want to admit they made a mistake. But let me ask a question to uh, Chris. Let me just go to you real, real quickly. The money comes out of the banks. Don't I just put it into money market funds? Isn't the cash still in the system? Well, it goes into T-bills at 5%. Right. <laughs> so it's still there. It's not like I put it under my mattress. Yeah, but it's in there. Yeah, it's in there. Right. No, but you know, it, you it, have it to. Disappears. Let me take this, Chris. The, um, yeah. the, the, you, when you pull the deposits out of the banking sector, they've then got to sell assets, right? Yep. What are their yep. assets? Yep. Yep. Well, their assets are loans to the house. This bank sector. accounting thing is very difficult. <laughs> yeah, money, that, money's complicated. It is. Yeah, easy to spend, difficult to decipher. Yeah. All right, Chris, what are, the, what are some of the next steps you're looking for in, in the evolution of what we're seeing out there? Or what should we be on the lookout for? I think the Fed needs to come forward and offer to finance all of these legacy assets that the banks have a problem with at par, at whatever the coupon rate is. So if I have a Ginnie Mae 2, the Fed should charge me 2% indefinitely until rates fall. That's how you take this off the table. All right. Simple. So, but, but Hugh, we've had some of the banks, regional banks report, and most of them are saying, don't worry. I of mean, course, well, they have to say that, right? But they I can't mean, say, freak out. But know, everyone saying, panic. Look at our balance sheet. Look at our stuff. We're... Doesn't matter. We're okay. Uh, Hugh, I mean, do we not take them at their word, I guess, or... Is it pro or is the problem too big for an individual bank per se? It's, Wait, do you have any bank deposits in the U.S., Hugh? I, no, no, I don't. I, I'm in a very <laughs> fortunate position where I, I owe the banks a lot of money. <laughs> I, I'd recommend that. In fact, to everyone, I'd recommend you panic. I mean, this is a good time to panic. Do you yeah? recommend gold? Do you like Bitcoin? Uh, I so gold has a logic, okay. But when we look at that kind of bell curve of distribution of where we are in distribution of, of returns, like gold presently is a little bit too far on the right axis in terms of like it's kind of rich. It could be richer. Yeah. Um, at 2054, we're almost do, at the all-time high. Do you know what I like? What I I like the bell curve. I like when it's hitting the x-axis at zero. On the left-hand side, which is to say you're like two, three standard deviations below the price norm of the last 40 years. Right. Welcome to the world of the ultra-long treasury, the most despised security because we got the boogeyman of inflation, right? So the TLT, the ETF, has halved, right? 180 to 90, today it's 100. I think that's an easy moonshot back to 140, 150. Wow. Boom. Wow. <laughs> they go long, long duration treasuries. TLT. Um, Chris, what do you think? I mean, where would you... Uh, put your money right now. Well, I think Hugh is right. It's hard to argue with the Treasury. I mean, my God, uh, why wouldn't you be in Everybody's the at the short deal? end of the curve, right? I mean, hence the oh, price. Yeah, yeah, but the hedge funds are at the short end. Deal. It's a function of, like, so it's like with duration. So if you've got a drug dealer, sorry, I meant to say, is there contract with a prime broker, <laughs> right? Then you get but mountains of leverage and you can own two year. But if you've got an NEV of of a billion dollars, you might have a hundred billion dollars in the two year and you'll make money. When in the ordinary world, we own the TLT, you've got to own duration to get the, to soup up your returns for a retail investor. That's how that, that equation works. All right, we're well, gonna let Hugh go because you have some TV coming up. So, but we appreciate the time uh, you, uh, with Hugh. We're gonna kick you now, out. You now, can, I just want to quickly yes. ask, I see at Hugh, under, at Hendry underscore Hugh for your, 
for your Twitter. Darling, I love you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> at Henry underscore Hugh is where you find Hugh Henry. Of course, the founder of... I got him now. Eclectica. And uh, as I said, uh, a surfer. Um, Chris Whalen... What what ah, what do you is. think? What do you think we need to be watching today? What where should I be faced at KRE? Should I be looking at um, you know uh, rates? Should I be looking at stocks? What what's the most important thing to, to follow? Well, I think you're looking at long rates for the flight to quality. Uh, I also think that there's going to be enormous pressure on short-term rates uh, in terms of buyers because they're going to be running out of risk assets. Um, you know, the, the U.S. is playing with fire. I think we're going to see dollar swaps flip back to a positive premium. They've been negative since the great financial crisis. And then I think this is going to start to weigh on the dollar and on the U.S. financial system because we are demonstrating to people that we don't know what we're doing. You know, when the Fed chairman tells everybody banks are fine and then you see the market going the other way, that's not a good picture. Um, and I think it raises questions of credibility uh, that go to the top of the government. So, you know, the president has a problem. I think he needs to make some changes in his team very quickly. Uh, well, that's right where I was going to go, Chris. This has not made uh, the front pages of the local papers. I mean, unless you happen to be in a town where uh, that bank well, is now. gone. I, 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 and, and I've heard nothing from Washington, really, from Congress or the administration, really, about this issue. Well, I've been hearing from career staff, okay, not the political staff, but the career people in most of these agencies are deeply concerned and they're moving. Uh, but there's only so much they can do. They they execute government policy. They don't make policy. So, you know, right now the government, I think, unfortunately, has a very weak hand. I work in the mortgage business. I deal with most of these agencies in Washington and they, they really don't have people that are financial uh, professionals. They have politicians mostly. So I, I think we, we have an issue, you know. Washington wants to continue to pretend that we can just fight inflation in a very traditional sort of way without the implications for financial stability that are clearly in our face. Well, right? Hugh says we're headed for deflation by, you know, oh, year yeah. end. I agree with him. I agree with him. Because look, again, if the bankers are stepping back to raise cash, what does that mean? That means they're going to cut people off from credit. And that leads to default. I think by third quarter, yep. credit's going to be the headline, Matt. You and I are going to be sitting here talking about credit. All right. All right. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting some of your time and getting your formed opinion. Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, uh, along with Hugh Hendry um, from Eclectica Asset Management. What an incredible roundtable, Matt, of just getting these quite frankly, it's very dire views of kind of some of the risks in the financial system. It's really freaking me out. I think we need to talk to some optimistic bulls, <laughs> right, you know, so. because I'm terrified. I'm running home right now. Sell the house, sell the car, sell the kids. And yep, we'll see. All right, let's head down to Washington. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's flip it. Maybe we can get a different perspective. I'm not sure, but we've certainly got somebody here who has a learned perspective, Dr. Richard Portis. He's a professor at the London Business School, but that does not begin to uh, explain uh, kind of his background and his experience because his CV just goes on and on and on. Undergraduate at Yale, PhD at Oxford, all the other kind of stuff that goes on there. I'm looking for perspective, and that's why we asked Dr. Portis to join us here. Uh, he's based in London, but he's joining us here in our Bloomberg studio here, so we, we appreciate that. Dr. Portis, thanks so much for coming in. How concerned should investors be about the U.S. banking system? I think very concerned. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be holding uh, shares in any of the mid-sized banks, any of the mid-sized banks, but certainly not those that have profiles that look anything like um, uh, First Republic or Silicon Valley or whatever. That is to say, specialized, specialized clientele, um, high net worth, maybe uh, whatever. Okay, you just don't want to be concentrated in that way, and you don't want to be sensitive to deposit runs. That's uh, what we call the deposit beta, right? Okay. Um, how much, uh, how much deposits will move out in response to an interest rate differential that you can get elsewhere? Uh, and what we saw with, what we've seen in a number of these cases is precisely that. So, what is the answer to stop this? You know, it seemed like we had it in the rearview mirror when Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan came in and bought First Republic. Or at least that was, you know, at the Milken conference, that was the general feeling that um, fears had been calmed. Now, um, you know, the concerns are front and center again, and the Federal Reserve raised rates even further, which seems to be the crux of the problem. It is the crux of the problem, but that's because rates were, nominal rates were low for a very long period of time. People took risks they shouldn't have taken. They accumulated portfolios that were very long duration. Uh, and um, and that's coming home to roost. So it's very straightforward, uh, and it should have been expected. Supervisors should have been much more vigorous uh, in their investigations of these various of these banks. Uh, but we are where we are, and uh, you know, um, it's it made me think today the Westpac story made me think of the of the line about you know how does a bank stock come down by 90%? The answer is it comes down by 80% the first day and 50% the next day. Oh, good yeah. point. Right? Yeah, that's the math. Uh, and, and that's what's happening. Uh, and uh, they, they can't survive like that. So uh, we will see more failures, whatever you want yep. to call them. But I had my Federal Reserve yesterday tell me there's not a problem with the, the banking system. It's sound and resilient. Yeah, I, you know, I've heard that one, that resilient line before when the chair of the Financial Stability Board in 2017, Mark Carney, then the governor of the Bank of England, said, we've now created a market-based financial system that is resilient, mm. right? Three years later, March 2020, wasn't resilient at all. And the answer is that, that um, there are some contingencies you can't provide for, yep. uh, but also there are structural, st structural weaknesses, and you have, to, you have to try to deal with those uh, um, in the short term, how do they deal with that? Do we see some kind of government or regulatory intervention? Do we see deposit guarantees? Do we see a ban on short selling? Which think, seems archaic, but yeah, you know. I, the ban on short selling won't do you much good. Um, uh, the, 
suggestion that you might stop deposits from running, um, that won't do, <laughs> that just won't pass. Putting Polit up gates is what our last that two guests pass. said was a possibility. That won't pass politically. It's completely out of the question. I mean, you can put up gates on a real estate, an open-end real estate fund, uh, if there's nice to be a run on that. That makes sense, okay? And they can then consolidate their position, liquidate some of their assets, and so forth in a reasonable time. But you can't put a gate on deposits. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Right, okay, uh, that's the political side. If it did, it would be the last thing they ever did, if right? If it did, it would, <laughs> it, would, it would be the last time anybody put their money in a bank. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Um, Dr. Portis, you're based in London at the London School of Business. Uh, we heard from the ECB today raising rates again. What's your view on the ECB and kind of what they're trying to do with the economy in Europe? I think the general mood of the ECB is uh, this was a hawkish 25B right. basis point rise uh, in the sense that uh, the president announced that she didn't expect this to be the end. And I think that's probably what we're going to see uh, unless something dramatic happens. Uh, we're going to see more 25 basis point rises up until the autumn. Probably, my view, they'll peak at 4 um, four percent, uh, but that's a sort of con consensus view. There's no news there. I think, I think they're wrong um, uh, in the sense that I think they should have paused. The, there is a credit crunch developing, as it is here, by the way, for small and medium-sized enterprises. It's going to be very tough. With and consumers? And yeah, and consumers too, absolutely. Um, but, um, but I'm worried about I'm worried about firms that won't have access to credit, and they, and that's just, you know, that is a big thing in Europe. You, you know, the system, the the, the uh, system is much more bank dependent in Europe than it is in the United States, uh, and that's where the financing comes from for the most part, and it's not going to come. It's not coming. I and just have to jump in here with a, a quick headline because. We told our listeners earlier that Western Alliance is mauling options, strategic options, including a uh, potential sale. That came from the Financial Times. Western Alliance itself comes out and says the report of deal talks is absolutely uh, false. So, you know, this is the Financial Times reporting and Western Alliance is, is denying it. Um, nonetheless, we do see shares of Western Alliance down right now 61%. Uh -huh. So, uh, and then of course they're halted. So, uh, right. you know, this is absolute free fall. They've already done the 80% drop that you talked about and the 50% yep. drop. And, you know, <laughs> they, 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 they have uh, come down, Western Alliance shares have, uh, well, 81% so far this year to date. But we're watching, of course, PacWest as well. Uh, reports yesterday that PacWest um, is looking for strategic options. They're down 88% year to date. Yeah. These yes. outfits are dead men walking. Oh, right. Yeah. All right. Uh, and and that's, there are going to be several of them. I would not want to count, um, right. but, um, but that's where we are. All right. Uh, Dr. Richard Portis, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time coming into our studios, uh, studio. Dr. Richard Portis, he's a professor at the London Business School, giving us some of his perspective and wisdom on kind of what we're seeing out there in the economy. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. This segment's called Don't Fight the Fed. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management and host of Masters in Business, uh, 
joins us here uh, on the access line. And Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at QI, joins us in studio. We're going to have an extended kind of couple block discussion with these two very smart people. And Danielle, let's start with you here. Um, Matt and I just had, you know, we were scared to death about it 45 minutes ago. We had a, a panel of folks saying this banking crisis is bad. It's like 1930. Well, surely you bad. met Hugh Hendry in the green room because I saw you were both uh, in there. Yes, yes. I, I did. Um, <laughs> um, he recently, he, yesterday, I think he postponed an interview with me. He said, I think I need another week to prepare. <laughs> okay. So what, ah. what's your feeling here just about the banking system out there? And is the Fed contributing to some of this stress there? How well, important look, is it to you? So I, I certainly think that the Fed, that the Fed's aggressive policies have obviously made quite the mark, if not, if not a scar. Uh, but that being said, you know, I was looking back at Fed rate hikes, but by the time we got to June, July 2022, I think the market should have, or the banks at least, should have figured out that Jay Powell was serious. Um, you know, the day that he was confirmed by the U.S. Senate, May the 12th, 2022, after being basically in a holding pattern for six months after being renominated, he went on NPR's marketplace and he did an interview and he said, inflation is now my number one target. We have to get it down to 2% period. And he changed his tune that day. He has not deviated and it's been almost a full year. So there's an argument to be made that there was time to prepare mm -hmm. because by then he was lobbing out 75 basis point rate hikes. Fair, fair enough. They should have prepared. Um, but in the absence of action from bank managers, don't they have regulators that are there to force them? I mean, well, <laughs> what was Mary Daly doing all this time? Well, what was Janet Yellen, Yellen doing when New Century went down? I mean, and in fact, you know, the, the very last chapter of, of, of Fed Up argues that we needed fewer banking districts than we have today. Fed Up is Danielle DiMartino Booth's book. Yes. Highly recommended. take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. I mean, yeah. Really subtle <laughs> well, subtitle. Well, I think Hugh Henry <laughs> agrees with you. Um, yeah, but because I think, he puts I think the Jay blame Powell's squarely there. a better place. Yeah. I, I really do think that he's got noble aims. Listen to what's coming out of the Milken Conference this week. There's a lot of fear running through the private credit markets yep. right now yep. that That's something is going to give, and yet private credit makes the rules. They dictate monet monetary policy. They have for years, ever since Dodd-Frank, and all of the, the talent went bleeding out of the conventional yes. banking yep. system. They're like, wait a minute, we can't make egregious amounts of profits? Fine, we'll just leave. Mm -hmm. and set up our own little non-banking system that's bigger than the conventional banking system. Hey, Barry, I want to bring you in here. Um, sure. Again, Matt and I, we kind of got, uh, you know, just freaked, out. freaked out by some of our previous guests talking about the banking situation. I kind of feel like, just from my personal view, I've kind of termed it now a crisis where a few days ago I wasn't there. How are you viewing what's going on out there in the banking world? You know, I look, I have a slightly different view than, than Danielle does about the impact of the Fed and, and, and why you don't want to unilaterally disarm and not have a central bank. But that said, the, the Fed was very belated in recognizing inflation. Some people have made the claim it was because Chairman Powell was in that holding pattern waiting to be confirmed that the Fed was sitting on their hands. They didn't want to be seen raising rates. I don't know how true that is. But it's pretty clear that the fastest rising rate environment of the modern era uh, has broken things. You, you can't take rates from zero to 500 basis points in 12 months and not cause some sort of damage. Uh, so some of this is the Fed's responsibility. Now, some of this is responsibility of the private sector bankers 
who don't seem to understand duration risk in a rising rate environment. That, that's pretty obvious. Even when we look at Silicon Valley Bank, people forget those geniuses actually put a hedge on and were fine in their hold to maturity book. They just realized how valuable that hedge was and said, hey, if we sell this hedge, we can all give ourselves bigger bonuses, not realizing, but we're taking our hedge off and, and putting our portfolios at risk. So so I'm less inclined to blame Fed supervision of all the banks under them for not they were doing what the wait, banks wait, wait. were supposed no, no, to no, do, no, no, which no, is Barry. manage their own risk. Barry, there was there were red flags at Silicon Valley Bank, and the regulators knew it, and the regulators did nothing about it. And this was a presentation made in in February of last year. Yeah, yeah, they, they probably should have done something. Right? In February of last year, it, it wasn't nearly as catastrophic a, as it became. But they were watching 500 every basis month. points I mean, later. They knew about the hold to maturity portfolio. By the way, what Danielle? Why don't they mark that stuff to market like weekly? Why? Why? Why are they allowed to just? Because we know that then the valuations are insanely detached from reality if they only have to. They, if they never have to market but, but to market. But you have an entire generation of banking regulators that are effectively used to operating at the zero bound. I mean, but that being said, okay, the rules have changed. Change your methodology, Ch change your approach. And if you've got all these red flags on these banks and you know that they're making insane commercial real estate loans or that they've got a highly concentrated book or that they're only banking to the venture capital industry, then for heaven's sake, factor that in. I just don't, Barry, what do you think? Is the bond market too opaque? Is it, do we not have the technology um, should we create a machine, a terminal, so to speak, chat, that allows chat GPT. us? <laughs> can AI help in terms? Why, why don't they mark their? Why didn't First Republic mark their mortgages Pri to market on a, on a regular basis? Is it not possible? Uh, sure, all that stuff is possible. Keep, keep in mind there were some rules that required more aggressive disclosures and, and more aggressive marks that the banking industry lobbied and actually got approved a couple of years ago which arguably certainly would have helped Signature Bank, probably would have helped Silicon Valley Bank. You know, every time we go through this cyclical from, from too much regulation to too little regulation, it seems that banks demanding less oversight have a tendency to, to blow themselves up. But, well, but Barry, but, it was Silicon Valley Bank's CEO, Greg Becker himself, who sat yes. on the San Francisco Board of Directors and who personally successfully lobbied Congress to to, to yes. loosen the regulation. And I mean, clearly Chair Powell has now, somebody's had their um, behind handed to them. <laughs> I knew Sorry. that was I, I, I had to coming. stop myself there, yeah. but somebody's had their behind yeah. handed to them. And now we know that, 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 that we need to be stress testing banks of a certain size and, and with, with bigger stress. The small community banks, however, that was a complete regulatory fumble with Dodd-Frank to, to target banks with $10 billion of assets. And then they went out and, and made up for having to cover the cost of compliance by making go-go commercial real estate loans. So Barry, are we going to see or do you believe we will get to the point where the government needs to step in somehow, whether it's the FDIC or the Fed? and? prop up this banking system? By the way, Barry, we should point out that we had a, uh, Chris Whalen on and Hugh Hendry on earlier, and they made some pretty extreme forecasts. They said that regulators are going to have to come in and put down deposit gates for U.S. banks. Yeah, I feel like if that's the case, that's the last thing that the government will ever do. Yeah, what are they, hedge funds or in private equity? They're allowed to not have people leave? That, that doesn't make... Uh 
any sense. I think what the the real key is um, that we we need to have much more robust approach to oversight, and and that allowing banks. Uh, this mad lobbying approach to say we want less oversight, less regulation, less capital reserves required um, is really problematic. But but here's the key thing I, I think we should focus on. When, when we had the financial crisis, everybody had eaten at the same poison buffet. And so you had this systemic problem of every bank, every broker, every non- uh, regulated bank all had consumed the same toxic uh, things which they either securitized or subsequently bought and so the whole system was put at risk. Yeah, the Fed has raised rates too quickly and they've broken things. It doesn't appear that the entire system is at risk just yet. If the Fed keeps raising, if they, if they keep breaking things, then we're going to have other issues maybe these banks should be holding their long-term treasuries in hold to maturity instead of of assets that could be sold. Maybe that's one solution. This all comes back to you're less profitable if you have more capital on the books. Maybe you need to think of yourselves as a sleepy Mm -hmm, utility in bank and accept lower profit margin in order to increase stability. We've had a couple days of central bank speak. Uh, The Fed yesterday, the ECB today, they seem to be in sync. Anything kind of jump out of you of, at, from either bank? Yeah, I, I continue to be struck by how both central banks seem to be far, far behind the data about when inflation peaked and how much further it's going to come down. And I know, I know the phrase transitory has gotten a, a, a bad rap, but transitory seems to have taken longer than expected. Uh, by most measures, goods peaked June 2022 and have, have come appreciably down. I, I heard you guys call, talking earlier this morning about oil at $67. Wherever we look at the things that were really prime drivers of inflation over the past couple of years, uh, lumber prices, pre- metals, uh, car prices, shipping containers, even just the cost of, costs of, of transport, uh, they've all come down appreciably in some cases, like lumber. They're below where they were when the pandemic started. And so, yes, services remain elevated, but the largest part of services is owner's equivalent rent. And that's driven in large part by where mortgage rates are. And guess who's driven mortgage rates higher in the United States? It's the Fed. Europe is a little different set of circumstances. They are behind us both in terms of the economic recovery and inflation. Um, but uh, it always seems like they're late to the party and fighting so, the previous battle. So is inflation coming down rapidly? Do you think, because Powell seemed to think yesterday, Danielle, that inflation um, could still rear its ugly head. He's very careful and has been about this. He doesn't want to re- repeat uh, Arthur Burns. What do you I, think? So you know, I have a little bit of a different view on this. I, I believe, and we were talking about this during the break, I believe that Jay Powell wants for monetary policy to actually affect 
the non-banking sector. So it's he's not dim. He knows that inflation's coming down. He knows that uh, uh, Barry and I, our mutual friend Peter Bookvar, he knows that, that, that there's at least a half a percentage point of additional tightening as of First Republic. Now we might have 100 basis points of additional tightening in the form of the credit credit crunch that we're seeing. Peter so, Bookvar from Miller Tayback and uh, back in the day. It, now yeah. is it Bleakly? Bleakly, yeah. yeah. Um, the book report. The book report, B-O-O-C-K. Yeah. Um, but, but the fact is, I think Jay Powell knows this. And I think Jay Powell wants to continue with quantitative tightening. He wants to continue that in the background. And he's got to have something to, to hide behind, for lack of a better word, in order to keep this going. Keep so, what going? What keep quantitative keep tightening going. going. Keep shrinking the balance sheet. Yeah, but that can happen gradually, and and the problem well, is very gradual already. Yeah. yeah, the the problem isn't the actual absolute level of rates; it's how quickly we've gotten here mm-hmm. by historic measures. Fed funds rate and even mortgage rates are not crazy; they're just crazy relative to the past. Doesn't the absolute decade. level hurt as well? I mean, this is sure. the argument well, the Delta Hugh, Henry, hurts. Hugh Henry was making that you know. 20% uh, in 1980 when total debt was, you know, one times GDP, it's just as bad as 5% now when total jet debt to GDP is, is four times. I don't really buy that. I've been hearing my entire adult life that, you know, if we keep running debt and deficits, you know, uh, no one will lend to Uncle Sam, the economy will crash, and the dollar will well, collapse. Well, no, but it's just that the carrying costs are very high. Yeah, they're going to continue to be cut high, but, you know, look at Japan. They're, they're double our GDP to debt ratio. It hasn't affected their ability to borrow at practically zero or for their GDP to continue chugging along. They have other demographic concerns, but I, I worry much less about the actual level of, of debt would it be better if rates were a little lower? Sure, but it, it, I don't think a couple of percentage points are going to make a, a big difference to something like Signature Bank or Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic or any of the other banks that ran into trouble for very specific managerial errors that were exacerbated by ha- well, the rapidity of the Fed raise. So, so, so think about th- th- think about this for just a second. Remember, Standard and Poor's Barry, we were there in Maine. Standard and Poor's downgraded the debt of the United States August of, August the fifth, two thousand eleven, because there had been no reforms done during the debt ceiling kerfuffle. What if this moment of higher interest rates actually brings a serious discussion to the table about some of the reforms that are desperately needed with our fiscal spending? And I'm not necessarily talking about the level of debt and or deficits, but being rational about the trajectory of the growth well, and, and going to the table and seriously taking this debt I mean, ceiling situation seriously. You know, Barry, I'm sure you read that a couple of days ago, Stan Druckenmiller was speaking, I think it was USC, um, at the USC School of Business, and he said, that we're all sitting here worried about a 30-foot wave in the form of the debt ceiling problem when we should be worried about the 200-foot tsunami just 10 miles out in the form of the total debt. So so first, let me just remind everybody that shortly after the S&P 500, I'm sorry, shortly after the S&P as a ratings agency lowered the U.S. Credit worthiness. Everybody guess what happened? Into treasuries. Rates went lower. <laughs> Rates went lower. They, right. They did. It's like, oh, uh, hold my beer. Watch this. And <laughs> and so, if we if the financial crisis didn't 
teach us that the least valuable entity in the entire known universe are the credit rating agencies, then you weren't paying attention. They were worthless then. They're worthless now. They'll be worthless in the future. Nobody should care about it. So, so fade, fade the credit rating agencies. Isn't it still nice to think that we could actually, like adults, approach fiscal reform? Um, again, if you, if you look at what the market is telling us, it, it doesn't matter all that so much. So are you it's a magic that money that tree guy, Barry? No, Say that again? Are you a magic money tree guy? No, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm a Hemingway guy. That it, it, it's very gradual until all at once. And right now, it's still very gradual. And when we look at Japan, they're much further down the debt rabbit hole than we are. And they're still in that gradual process. At some point in the future, all of this debt will matter. But it's going to be the way people go bankrupt gradually and then all at once. And we're still in the gradual phase. I would too. I've got kids and (laughs) they'll have kids and we should be thinking about future generations and not necessarily. What we're trying to do is rip them off to pay for our retirement, right? Yeah, but that's been going on for generations. That's been going on for generations. Right, forever, forever. (laughs) Exactly. At a certain point when you keep. That's not a good reason to keep it going. Exactly. The boy who cried wolf at a certain point, nobody pays attention anymore. All right, we guys, we got to cut off there. Thank you for the extended stay. We appreciate it. Barry Ridholz. Founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management and Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at QI, helping us kind of frame out what's going on in these markets. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get right back to the discussion here. We're going to bring in our next guest. We really always appreciate uh, getting a few minutes of her time. Claudia Som, founder and independent uh, economist at Som Consulting. Claudia, we've had a lot of federal, uh, you know, central bank discussion and movement over the past couple of days, but it seems to be pushed a little bit to the background by what's going on with the U.S. regional banks. How are you viewing what, what's happening out there with the banks? How concerned are you about how this may be maybe more systemic than, than others think? Right. This week has really been a competition for the worst thing happening in the U.S. economy. I mean, it's pretty amazing to have the debt ceiling eclipsed in, in addition. I absolutely think that there should be concern about the, what's happening with the regional banks. What uh, Chair Powell said yesterday, the banking system is resilient and sound. That is a true statement. And yet, fundamentals are not enough to bring contagion and this kind of downward spiral that we're seeing under control. So it's uh, it's really disconcerting that this has continued. And it's not clear how this ends, whether we really are seeing the end of it. It doesn't appear that way. Are, are, are you concerned about, I mean, it doesn't seem like regulators did much um, in terms of stopping this collapse of SVB or First Republic, are they going to, is there something they can do now, Claudia, that, that you can think of? They're in a difficult position. In the beginning, they were just flat-footed. 
right? Silicon Valley Bank uh, came out of nowhere. I mean, it shouldn't. But they'd have, known but for it, they'd known for a year. Yeah, they said in testimony. Yeah, no, they knew. But I mean, it's it's different between knowing something and acting in a serious way. Exactly. And they hadn't acted in a serious way. They're at a point now, and the FDIC, like this is they're doing the playbook now banks are in trouble and then they you know find a buyer and so things are in more of that state of um not quote-unquote business as usual when you have banks under strain and yet the piece that is really hard for policymakers and this is why the genie out of the bottle was such a big problem is you have this psychology Jay Powell can tell people all he wants the banking system resilient nothing to see here and they are not believing it, right? And so this is the tricky part. And honestly, I don't know how the policymakers pull this back in because you say the wrong word, like uh, Pac West said last night about their, you know, strategic looking for a buyer, and things can really go south quickly. So Claudia, how concerned are you that, you know, this banking crisis that many people are calling, and I think I might be in that camp now will in fact have a material impact on the availability and the affordability of credit such that it really will have a, a big impact on this economy. It will absolutely have a big impact on small businesses that do a lot of their uh, business with smaller and regional banks. It will have an impact, though it may be slow moving, an impact on commercial real estate, which again does a lot of business with regional banks. Um, it's and and we're going to see this not just in the interest rates, where the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates, uh, though there's a lot going on in the markets. What we are seeing, and I think we're going to absolutely see next week when we get the senior loan officer and opinion survey, is that we see standards tightening. So this is about the supply of credit getting harder. And that, you know, it's one thing to just say, hey, I'm a business, I'll pay more for the credit. It's another thing to say, I just can't get it. Right. And that does limit the kind of opportunities that they have to grow and expand and have keep their workers. Right. So it can have a lot of effects and it will have effects in these local, more localized communities. It's an open question as to how much it spills over, like in aggregate. But the longer this goes on, the higher those chances go. Yeah. And I think that this conversation then dovetails nicely with your column with the column that you put on the Bloomberg terminal about labor market tightness and the issue of, yes, we're at a nationally um, a record low for unemployment. But if you look in pockets, you know, big, important states like New York and Ohio, we still don't have employment levels back up to where they were pre-pandemic. Um, I was listening to Diane Swank talk yesterday on uh, on our Fed special, and she pointed out the importance of small and medium sized companies as as employers. Um, and these are the companies that are going to be directly affected by a regional banking credit crunch. Does that, you know, does this exacerbate the problems that, you know, these these localities and especially, uh, you know, underfunded, underbanked communities have in terms of getting jobs back? Absolutely. Uh, Diane is right. The small businesses are the, you know, heartbeat of the em employment that we have in the country, and they're the ones that are going to have difficulty accessing credit. The in, in the column I was talking about today, where like we should be careful on say Jobs Day tomorrow when we get the aggregate numbers and we have Chair Powell saying we have a very tight labor market. We need to be careful. There's a lot of variation across the country right now. 
about 40% of the U.S. states haven't achieved their pre-pandemic employment levels. And then you've got another 20% that are well above it. So we have, we don't have a tight labor market in every labor market. We have kind of when you add it all up, it looks like, you know, there's a shortage of workers. That's not the case. The Federal Reserve, and by letting them dominate the conversation about the economy, their tools are very blunt. Their mandates are national. But we have so many other policymakers that can be much more targeted, but we have to actually you know, admit that there's this diversity and then think about how how to address it. So how do we? I saw uh, one of the lines um, in your in your column, geographic realignment could help address some of the national labor shortages. And I was trying to think of, you know, how the Fed could be involved in geographic realignment. But as you point out, their tools are blunt. Which regulators need to be um, you need need to be brought in and what do they need to do? Well, one thing, you know, we have a potentially looming uh, recession that we should be preparing for, you know, hope for the best, um, but prepare for the worst. And one thing that we can do when we're putting policies in place is to target, in particularly when the policies phase out, to the local labor market conditions. So the unemployment insurance ought to phase out as that state's unemployment rate gets back to normal. We saw a lot of problems with the politics of it when we had just a date in the last, you know, in the last recession where it turned off, and they just didn't take into account that some states it took a lot longer for them to recover. They're still recovering, and others really came back strong. So, if you want to use money effectively and equitably, then, you know, look at the reality of what's going on. In terms of now to build resilience, because a lot of our communities that were struggling before COVID, they got hit really hard, and they're still struggling. Right. We have large programs like CHIPS infrastructure uh, that you could say, let's give some priority to communities that haven't recovered yet. So a question came up in my head reading your column, and I want to preface this uh, by saying I'm a total idiot when it comes to (laughs) economics. And so don't get angry if this is a bad question. Um, Is there some kind of mobility program that we could um, put out there, which would which would help the realignment. I mean, I guess if you're looking for a job in New York and you can't find one, you're probably not in a position to relocate to Florida, right? Is there is there any way that we could help that relocation, that mobility? Would that be a good solution? For a long time, economists had been big proponents of moving people to prosperity, right? So moving people from the heartland to the New York cities, the Bay areas, you know, that had a lot of jobs. And, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. The last thing my family wants to do in Indiana is move to New York City, (laughs) right? Like, that's just, it's it's a non-starter. Yeah, but what about Orlando? New York's not a great place right now. The Sun Belt's a good place to go. This is true. And it changes, right? Like, the communities. Um, No, I think where we've come around to is we must figure out a way to invest in the communities uh, there, there's a lot of, you know, Atlanta took a lot of effort after the Great Recession. They really struggled with some of the, the comeback in jobs, as a lot of the country. And they really built up their workforce yep. uh, development networks. That's one of those are hard to build up. But when you take the view that you've got to make it better on the ground, as opposed to telling people, well, you know, you can stick around, but really you ought to go to ship out right exactly all right claudia thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it uh I wish we had i wish we had more time i know we'll get her back you know we'll i grew up in granville right granville ohio i know i know and, and claudia 
Went to Denison. Denison, that's right. Yeah. That makes it all come home. Claudia Som, founder and independent economist for Som Consulting. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Talking about... Central banks this week uh, raising rates, the uh, Fed and, and and the ECB each raising by 25 basis points. And obviously that's been just maybe the end of what has been an unbelievably uh, stark uh, increase in rates across the world, including here, most notably here in the U.S. And what does that mean for the real estate business? Well, we're going to check in with Brad Case. He's the chief economist and director of research at Middlebird uh, Communities. Brad, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean... I don't know. I just took out a mortgage for a property, but I, I kind of feel like I'm the exception rather than the rule. And oh, by the way, I fully plan on refinancing that bad boy in 12 to 18 months at materially lower rates. But talk to us about kind of good luck. <laughs> talk to us about kind of what you're seeing in, in your business, Brad. Well, what we're seeing in 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 the commercial part of the real estate market is um, is that financing is still available, but it is a little bit harder to uh, to access, and that's and and that and that's not really a problem. Um, you know, if it, when when uh, when there's concern about the banking system, um, when something makes borrowing more difficult, whether it's the rise in interest rates or whether it's the the concern about uh, about the the regional banks that have uh, that have gotten in trouble recently, you know, when 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 that makes it harder to borrow money, it's not everybody who fails who you know who has difficulty accessing capital. It's the weakest projects, and so that's that's why it doesn't really uh, doesn't really bother me. It makes us work hard. Harder to get financing for the projects that we have that are really good projects. If you've got a, if you've got a, a development project, for example, that makes sense only because e- capital is easy to get, then it doesn't really make sense. You don't really want projects like that happening as a, uh, you know on an economy-wide basis. So yes, it's harder to get financing, and that's not really a problem. So and the other thing is refinancing. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people hear what you're saying and visualize a project getting started, but there are a lot of refis that need to happen out there. Um, and if they don't, asset values will drop dramatically, won't they? Oh, yes. And I mean, asset values have dropped already over the past year, and I expect that there's more to come. Um, however, again, it's not that it, that all asset values drop. It's that it's that average asset dro- values drop, which is to say some projects that that you know you've got a you've got a retail project where no one really wants to shop, or you've got an office project um, in a place where where there's not a lot of office employment. Um, it's going to be difficult to to convince um, your source of capital that they should that they should refinance a loan that's coming due when you don't really have the fundamentals to support. Uh, continuing to pay make payments on that debt so uh, so uh, the pain of something like that is not spread evenly at all um, it's uh, you know other parts of the real estate market that are just doing just fine they are not going to have have difficulty uh, getting new financing to replace their existing loans Brad we're, we're experiencing uh a lot of turmoil uh, in the regional banking space over the last four, five, six weeks, and it's really picked up steam again over the last several days with some of these names really being taken to the woodshed in terms of their stock price. Um, from your perspective, from your business perspective, how are you viewing this development? 
Well, it's a concern, but you know, if if you if you use a lot of if you use debt frequently, then what you have been doing is setting up a range of options because for any any particular use of debt, um, it may be that you know one source of capital is just not looking to to fund that kind of a kind of a project or an acquisition or whatever it is, and so you're lining up several sources of capital so that when one one of them says no, we have too much of that sort of work. Um, uh, then you go to somebody else who says, "Who says, yeah, we're ready to ready to finance that." And so, you know, that's a that's a normal way of doing business. So, um, so it, there aren't, uh, there shouldn't be a situation where the regional banks that are you know, that are having difficulty are your only sources of capital. Um, so, so going forward, we will see other sources of capital picking up the slack. Did you, I mean, one thing I've been thinking about is anyone who needs financing, A, should have taken care of it as uh, he saw rates rising, you know. But the Jersey Shore estate did not come on the market when we're in Okay, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about Brad's business, you know. Um, People developing, you know, uh, big businesses or, you know, even medium-sized businesses should already have gone out there or should be getting out there now, Brad. Have you, have you at Middleburg Communities already taken care of your financing needs as you see, as you saw rates coming higher and higher? Well, there's always this process of looking at our pipeline and making sure that we have the financing, the right financing in place for all of the projects in the pipeline. But yeah, it's very important to be looking forward and anticipating issues like this. You can't you can't do it uh, perfectly, but if you look at what happened back uh, back before the the liquidity crisis of 2008 and 2009, there were companies that anticipated that things were going to be tighter. It doesn't mean they anticipated a, a crisis, but they anticipated that things were going to be get more difficult. And they addressed that. Um, they, you know, maybe they refinanced some some uh, some borrowing before they had to, um, but because they were concerned that it might be more difficult going forward. And if you were one of the people who who you know looked forward, made it made a guess, made a pretty good guess, and acted on it, then you came out of that crisis much more solid than companies that you know just sort of let the market happen to them. So you know what what we try to do is we try to do a better job of than than other than our competitors of anticipating that kind of development in the market and responding to it in terms of when we're raising capital how much we're raising capital and who we're raising it from and brad in terms of deploying that capital are you just building stuff down in florida and texas where everybody seems to be going where where are you guys seeing the opportunities you look several years ahead so we, so our 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 area is basically from Virginia to Texas, um, and yes, area. it includes includes Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee. You know, so those are very good markets. But one of the things that we pay very close attention to, of course, is what other people are doing because we don't want to be building a new a new rental housing community in a place where there is too much construction. And fortunately, in that part of the market, you know, there is still so much unmet demand. Um, but we look market by market, um, and we say we may say, all right, here's a particular city that that you know looks terrific, but look how much uh, new supply is coming on online. We don't want to be locked into a big development that's coming online in the middle of you know what may be a softening of rent growth or a, or an increase in vacancy rates because there's too much supply coming along on, online. So yeah, we 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 pay close attention to it, and and again, our goal is to be a little bit better than our 
our com- than our competitors in terms of anticipating how much new supply there's going to be, how much new demand there's going to be, not just na- nationwide, but but in particular markets. Yeah, it just seems like the regional aspect. I guess it's pretty straightforward, and kind of the markets you're in. Um, I, I seem to be some of the higher growth areas. What do you think about when you if you when you think about going into uh, a is it who are like who are your competitors? Are there other builders you're you're competing against, or are there other modes of living that you kind of look at, or is it just simply oh boy, our big competitor across the street is building a big property in this market. Let's let's stay away from it. No, you know we we are a full service company, so we 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 build rental housing communities. We buy them. Uh, we manage them, including sometimes managing for other people. So we're looking at competitors on a whole range of the, uh, uh, you know, of parts of the business. Um, but so so part of what we're trying to do is to say, all right, you know, right now it looks like a really good time to develop. Let's, you know, let's make sure that we have a good development pipeline. Or at a different time, we may be saying, all right, development is really not the best, you, you know, best place to focus our efforts. You know, let's be thinking about acquiring properties. And it has to do and and there's a lot of differences both by market and by uh, segment of the rental housing market. So, for example, we were among the earliest in terms of the, you know, uh, building single-family um, rental housing communities. Uh, you know, because you know the the some of the single-family rental housing is scattered yeah. site, and what we work on is a community with amenities and a and a sort of a, a professionally managed um, a place to live. Where instead of sharing a wall with your neighbor, you've got your own four walls. Yep. Um, so we were a little bit earlier than many of our competitors in terms of figuring out that that's what a lot of people were going to want right. and what kind of house would work well for them. All right, good stuff, Brad. Thanks so much for taking the time. We really appreciate talking about the real estate biz uh, and the economics of the real estate business. Brad Case, he's the chief economist and director of research at Middleburg Communities, talking about kind of some of the real estate opportunities uh, around the country. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We'll talk about cross-currents. We've got earnings coming at us, uh, seemingly left, right, and center this week. It's been a busy week. We've got the Fed and the ECB raising rates. Maybe going to pause. We'll have to pay attention to that. Uh, we've got some uncertainty out of Washington over this whole debt ceiling thing. And then, if that's not enough, throw in some real concerns brewing in this uh, marketplace about some of the banks in the United States. So how's a professional supposed to deal with that? Well, fortunately, we have one that has a lot of perspective, a lot of experience. Margie Patel, Senior Portfolio Manager at Allspring Global Investments, joins us. Margie, I'd like to just start with kind of what we've been experiencing really over the last couple of days, but over the last four or five weeks with some of these regional banks. How concerned are you that this is something systemic that could be a problem for the economy? Well, it definitely is, and the I would say in almost all cases, uh, the banks really weren't doing anything wrong. They simply structured their balance sheets according to zero rates and simply couldn't adjust for a five-point increase in short rates in a year. So I think that the fragility that we're seeing is really um, caused by Fed actions, and the Fed seems rather immune to the damage mm-hmm. they're causing. And we even heard that in, in the comments from Jay Powell yesterday, that whereas the banking system, in his estimation, is pretty sound. Where do you think we are with this Federal Reserve, and, and do you think 
that they are pausing? Do, is there a risk or is there a chance that they may be cut in the face of what could be uh, some, some challenges in the economy stemming in part from the banks? Well, it seems to me they're so focused on bringing down the um, the inflation rate that they're really losing track of what's going on in the real economy, particularly in the financial sector, where we're seeing lots of stress, again, yep. precipitated by Fred actions. And really, looking at his comments, he was really rather uh, high-handed about what happens to banks and, oh, well, if we have a number of banks continue to shrink, then that's that's just the way it goes, rather than looking at uh, how much of that is really due to uh, what the Fed has done to limit them. So we think that there is something to be concerned about because the Fed just the Fed doesn't seem very concerned about the financial system. They're looking at the inflation rate and yep. so that's why they think they're the, the course is still steady and that they're missing the bigger picture. Yeah, that uh, the risk is that that comes back to bite them. In terms of earnings, Margie, we're about 80% through uh, I guess the S&P 500 reporting and the good news is there was some revenue growth close to 4%, but the earnings growth a negative 3%, indicating some real margin pressure out there. What's your takeaway from, from this earnings season so far and, and maybe what that means to your sense of valuation? Well, the just like the fourth quarter surprised by uh, better results than we expected, the first quarter has actually been better than the market expected. It's true we're starting to see some pressure on revenue growth, and we're also seeing some pressure on earnings. But it's been less than the market expected, and it shows companies so far have held up pretty well. However, I think the, the question is what we're seeing in some of the companies that are disappointing is really telegraphing that we may see a much more sharp deterioration as we go into the next uh, few quarters. So are you are you baking into your outlook a, an outright recession? And if so, kind of what duration? I'd like to think we could avoid a recession, but honestly, when you look at the signs that we're seeing, uh, bank lending officers becoming more conservative, we've seen hiring um, statistics really roll over, and uh, we've seen signs that consumers are starting to feel a little stressed, in the, especially in the lower-tier consumers. So we think that uh, we rather suddenly are seeing some pressure on the economy. Plus, a lot of the uh, things that make the economy look good are going to go away. For example, if student loans come back to start to take a bite out of income, and also many state and local governments have been spending their COVID money. That's why construction um, by, uh, by public entities has has held up so well. So that's going to come to an end. So we may sort of go off a uh, more of a, of a cliff than we see right here in the first mm. quarter. All right. Given all those, uh, you know, cross currents, if you will, and maybe even some, some, some headways out there, what are some of the, the sectors that you guys are still find attractive and you might be doing some work in? Well, thinking that basically everybody uh, over the next few quarters is going to have disappointing earnings um, compared to what we're seeing today. We still like the technology sector, uh, especially semiconductors. We think they're working through their inventory issues. They're well understood, the uh, the inventory, and we, we expect to see long-term growth there. We like the industrial sectors because we do believe that the reshoring um, and the Increased capital expenditure is going to increase, and selectively, we like part of healthcare. We think that uh, companies that can innovate and avoid um, some of the price pressures of the uh, the drugs coming off patent will still have a sustainable growth path. And companies that have good balance sheets, in case we do have real financial stress. Yeah, it's interesting on the on the tech side. You know, I I don't know. I guess all I know or what I really know about the the chip business is, boy, it's long cycle, and you better really get the cycle right. Um, so do you see demand picking up for chips in the back half of this year? 
Well, we're thinking in the back half of the year that we should see the excess inventory be largely worked off and then looking for a uh, pickup in demand as we get in the second half. And uh, if we see more pressure on the economy, we may have to push that out a bit. But at this point, that's our thinking. And on this, the reshoring issue, that was certainly a very, really hot topic during the beginning of the pandemic when some of these supply chain issues became really apparent, including chips. And, you know, we say, boy, we got to start reshoring some of this stuff. And I know the rhetoric was hot and heavy at the time. Have we actually seen businesses across, you know, sectors really start to reshore some of this stuff? Yes, we have. Of course, at the margin, it's still a small part of the economy. We've also seen companies move to, if not in the United States, close to the United States, say Mexico, for an example. Right, friendshoring, I guess, is what they yes. call it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, to make those. Uh, but we think that's a, a uh, permanent change, a permanent swing away from particularly sourcing from China. We don't think that's going to be reversed. And it's interesting, in the, in the healthcare space, you know, we've seen some deals happening, and I, that always seems to be kind of a merger Monday on the, the pharma space. And is that, when you invest, invest in healthcare, do you try to keep that in mind? Do you, do you ignore that? Or do you just stay with some of the bigger names that kind of give you a broad diversification, uh, diversification in the space? Yes, we, we try to stay with the larger names that have good cash flow, that um, are diversified, so they won't be hurt by uh, fall off in any one product. And uh, rather than looking for companies that might be uh, acquired, we think good companies are the companies that eventually get acquired. And so we're looking for companies that can have sustainable cash flow through what might turn out to be a more difficult period than we're thinking right now. Right. Yep, absolutely. All right, Margie, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate getting your time as always. Margie Patel, she's a senior portfolio manager at Allspring Global Investments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.